Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, and welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Today's guest is Ronald Shouten, MD, JD, and I'm going to talk about his bio in a second, but Arden and I are both really excited to have him, if for no other reason than his breadth and depth of information and knowledge in an area that many of us have very little information about. So, Dr. Shouten is the Director of Forensic Psychiatry Fellowship at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C., the Director Emeritus of Law and Psychiatry Service of the Mass General Hospital and Chair of the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals. He's on the Governmental Affairs Committee. He has served as the Director of MGH and Medical School Forensic Psychiatry Fellowship and is an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. You are one busy man. I try to stay out of trouble. There we go. Thank you. Thank you. He is also an author, teacher, and the book I read of his a few years back was called Almost a Psychopath. And it was fascinating to get some frame on this issue of manipulation and lack of empathy. So, welcome, Ron. And I'm going to start with the number one question that is probably on other people's minds. What is a psychopath? Now, uh, first of all, thank you for having me. And I, I always rush to, to point out that the title of the book, it's not a memoir, after all. <laughs> that, uh, in fact, <laughs> although some people may disagree, uh, you know, it's a story about, it's a, it's a book about uh, subsyndromal psychopathy. So we're going to get to that. So a psychopath, often referred to as sociopaths, but the preferred uh, you know, scientific and clinical term is psychopath or psychopathy. Psychopath is an individual who possesses really a variety of emotional, interpersonal, behavioral characteristics, traits that amount to the clinical concept of psychopathy. There's no formal uh Diagnosis in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is kind of the diagnostic guide that we use in the U.S. There's no formal diagnosis of psychopathy. Instead, they use antisocial personality disorder, which is based more on sort of observed behaviors of what people do. What is great about the concept of psychopathy uh, in its modern version is that it looks at not just behavior, but it also looks at the person's internal emotional state, their interpersonal characteristics, how they behave in general. Uh, whereas the antisocial personality disorder diagnosis really looks at, really it hinges on criminal behavior. Psychopathy doesn't require criminal behavior, although it has a component. Uh, you know, in, in medicine, there are always, there are textbook cases, you know, that have all the characteristics. Well, in fact, most diagnoses are spectrum disorders, and that is true of psychopathy. Uh, so, sure, there's a textbook case of, you know, Hannibal Lecter or serial killers who are cold-hearted and sadistic, violent criminals. In fact, that's not the case with psychopathy. And 
Um, so we'll talk about you know some of the the range of, of symptoms and characteristics here. I, th I think one of the helpful things is to look at how the modern concept of psychopathy was laid out by Robert Hare, who's a emeritus professor at the University of British Columbia, and developed the psychopathy checklist, and then the psychopathy checklist revised, and really responsible for the modern conceptualization of psychopathy and a good deal of the work that's come since he developed that in the 1970s. What, what Hare did with the PCLR, Psychopathy Checklist Revised, was to come up with 20 criteria. You know, so 20 items on a, it's an interview scale, it's also ba it's based on interview and also research of records. So 20 items on this scale and people get a score of zero, one, or two. And if they score a two on all of them, which is really quite rare, although it's it's happened, uh, they get as, you know they get a forty, right? So, but anywhere between a thirty and forty, a person is considered to be a quote unquote true psychopath. But even below, be ten to twenty, twenty to thirty. And I'm going to go through the items in a second, but it's those characteristics cause a lot of damage. So what, what are the characteristics, right? They're, they're divided into four different groups, interpersonal characteristics, emotional characteristics, uh, lifestyle characteristics, and then antisocial behavior. So emotional characteristics, Lat, uh, glibness and superficial charm. So, uh, you know, this the idea of someone who is just too likable, too smooth, and yet very superficial in their relationship grandiosity, you know, grandiose sense of self, that they are the most important person in the room. Uh, you know, what's that wonderful song from years ago? You're so vain, you know, you walked into the party, uh, like you're walking aboard a yacht and you know, like everybody was looking at you. That's, that's the, that captures it right there. Pathological lying. People who lie, uh, you know, strategically, People who lie just for the sake of lying. And so the, the example I've always used is, you know, the person who you run into at work and you say, hey, I saw you coming out of, you know, McDonald's yesterday or, you know, some other fast food restaurant. Oh, no, that wasn't me. I, I was eating at the Ritz yesterday. Why do they have to lie about that, right? Well, they lie about it to improve their self-image, to make you more impressed with them. But sometimes they'll just lie for no reason at all. Right, just to be contrary. Uh, conning and manipulative behavior, and, and the, the classic psychopath, I mean the full-blown psychopath, will not only engage in conning and manipulative behavior, but they take great pride in it. And the more impressive person, the more authority the person has that they con or manipulate, the happier they are. It's a sense of, it's almost a game with them. So if they can fool a lawyer or a doctor or a judge, right? They get great satisfaction from that. So those those are the interpersonal characters. Emotionally, lack of remorse or guilt. Uh, these are people who often will really be indifferent to any harm they cause other people or any violation of rules. Shallow affect. They often have difficulty explaining. If you if you talk to a psychopath and say, "So have you ever felt depressed?" Oh yes, I felt depressed. Well, what's it like when you're depressed? Well, what do you mean? Well, what's the experience of being depressed? You know, depressed. They really can't describe it in any depth. Uh, callousness and lack of empathy. And this is, this is kind of a classic, right? Uh, people who are unable to appreciate their imp the impact of their behavior on other people 
who are unable to, and this is physiologically based for people with, with psychopathy, uh, that they are unable to appreciate or read the pain that other people are experiencing. And that this has been shown in a number of controlled laboratory experiments where people are given you know, shocks to their fingers and they have a confederate who is also expressing, you know, is supposedly getting shocked. And they don't react at all to the pain that other people experience. One caveat to that, however, there's a, a new concept called the dark of the dark empath. So this is someone who has multiple uh, characteristics of psychopathy and some of the dark tetrad characteristics I'll talk about in a second. And yet they have an amazing capacity for empathy. Which this, this concept really explains some of the dilemma that we've had in years past because we say, well, a true psychopath is unable to understand, appreciate, read uh, the experiences of other people, well, then how can they be so conning and manipulative, right? And this concept of the dark empath is that these are people who have all these other characteristics of psychopathy. However, they are just very astute at reading other people and understanding other people's wants and needs and then using that to manipulate them. Lifestyle, need for stimulation prone to boredom, fast cars, fast motorcycles, risk-taking behavior, uh, person who engages in sort of this reckless, almost dare me, I dare you to catch me behavior. Mm. Uh, parasitic lifestyle, I, I've interviewed people who, you know, had multiple, you know, promiscuous behavior and, and living with multiple people, either living off one girlfriend or a, another wife or two people or living off their parents, never really taking responsibility uh, for, their, for their, own, uh, their own needs, their own housing, their own food. Lack of uh, uh, realistic long-term goals, impulsivity, recklessness, not taking responsibility for one's actions against, and then antisocial behavior, uh, antisocial characteristics, poor behavioral controls, uh, early behavioral problems like conduct disorder in childhood, juvenile delinquency, uh, revocation of conditional release if people are out on parole, and criminal versatility. So people who engage in multiple different crimes. So you have those four categories. You have 20 items there. Again, if you get a two on all of them, you get a 40, and, and it's, it's a pretty bad situation. But most people score less than 10, fortunately. But people who start getting into that 10 to 20 range are starting to look more and more like psychopaths. So I have one question as I listen to this list. How are most teenagers not considered psychopaths under those criteria? Well, it's a great question. I, I've often commented that adolescence is a mental illness. <laughs> so that, and so we, he, we hesitate, right? And, and we do not diagnose people with personality disorders before they turn 18. And in fact, it may be even too early because of what we know about the developing brain, especially in, in young males. Uh, and so a lot of these behaviors that uh, might fit into the psychopathy criteria tend to resolve themselves over time. And so we will diagnose conduct disorder in children. We'll uh, diagnose obsessional defiant disorder in children. But really the full-blown personality disorders, we, don't, we hold off on that until people have a chance to go through the developmental process. Thank you. That makes me feel much better. <laughs> it just feels like they're psychopaths. Let's, right. 
It's quite a list. I mean, it, it, when you listen to the different categories and then the different characteristics in those categories, I just keep thinking, boy, I'm, I'm hoping I don't accidentally invite somebody like that to my dinner table because it is a very scary list. I mean, how common is this? Is this something we, as we're walking around in the world, like when you talk about the different, I know you said very few wind up in the over 20 category, but how many wind up in that 10 to 20 category that are sort of edging on um, the the verge of, of being described or being characterized as a psychopath? Yeah, I mean, so if you think about the four the four groups of criteria, right, interpersonal, emotional, and lifestyle, antisocial, you don't need the antisocial, right? Let's say mm -hmm. somebody skipped all those antisocial characteristics, poor behavioral controls, early behavioral problems, juvenile delinquency, revocation of, right? That you would still have a score of 30, right? So you don't need to be criming to, to be diagnosed as a psychopath. You have all these other characteristics. The numbers suggest that about 1% of the non-incarcerated population, right, meet the criteria of psychopathy. So score 30 to 40, which is kind of scary, right? How now, many? If you, Can you repeat 1%, that one more time? 1% of Americans meet the full okay. criteria for psychopathy. So help me with the math here, right? I mean, what's that give us in, in uh, a population of 350 million people? Uh, and as many, and the numbers looking at different countries, and, and, and this is a cross-cultural concept, by the way, uh, it applies in, uh, you know, it's been applied in Northern Europe and the Middle East and Japan, elsewhere, that um, that as many as 15% of people qualify as subsyndromal, you know, sort of almost psychopaths that we wrote about in the book. Uh, and for people in, in the incarcerated population, right, uh, so in the incarcerated population, about 16% or another million people or so are psychopaths. Uh, and so, you know, you, you, you get up there past like around 2%, which is more than schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and things like that. 30% of the population is estimated to have virtually no psychopathic traits, right? Only 30%? That, yeah. Yeah. Have none, none, zero, right? Uh, but if you look at the rest of the population, 30%, you know, about the rest have low, medium, or high levels, right? But full-blown psychopaths, about 1%. So it basically means that about 20, 25% have subsyndromal psychopathy. How would we identify one? We've got this list, we've got these criteria. How would we as lay people have a sense when we're dealing with somebody at the country club? You know, um, first of all, trust your spidey sense. Uh, if you feel something wrong, if, if you're hearing stories that are too good to be true, or too awful to be true, and they seem unrealistic, pay attention to that. But you know, you would never, if you were to just meet somebody, you walk into a cocktail party, you're at the country club, you're, you're, you're having lunch and you meet someone new, right? You would never make that determination in a single, in a single visit, nor should you, right? I mean, you just, you need to look at the, the need to look at the behavior and the behavior has to be consistent in multiple realms of that person's life. Right. And and throughout that time. So, you know, you might meet somebody off, at, you know, again, at a cocktail party or, or wherever, and they come across as, you know, back slapping, shaking your hand. They're 
charming and they're funny and they're very glib and they're very witty. Well, you you know, that's one. Of, that's the lead factor in in the psychopathy checklist. But they could be just a really glib, superficially charming person, and that's you know, or they may not behave like that in private. They maybe mm-hmm. have learned, maybe they've learned to do that as a way to social climb or to meet new people and they're forcing themselves or they're trying new things out. So you really need to get to know people over time. Now, you meet somebody like that and you notice they're kind of manipulating other people and trying to sell them stuff or sell them themselves or they're requiring excessive attention uh, or they're you know, engaging in illegal behavior or Blaming others, you know, one of the big factors is what we call externalization of blame. Nothing is my fault. It's always somebody else's fault. There's always an excuse for that. Or they get caught in lies. I mean, the the classic pathological liar is someone who just keeps retreating and retreating and retreating. And they stick with their lie with the hope that people will just sort of back away and say, well, if if. You know, if that's a, uh, if, if they're that open, that willing to talk about it, they, you know, uh, they must be telling the truth. So an example we used in the book was there was, there was a fellow who got hired by a, a, a big financial services firm during a period when people weren't, they were so busy, they weren't doing a lot of background checks. Uh, and the background checks were, you know, backlogged. So they hired the this person and he comes in and he's, he's working in the firm. But then there's some funny business going on. And it looks like there's some some gambling that's going on. And this is a firm that, you know, really required pretty high level security and, and, and trustworthiness. And all fingers were pointing towards this particular fellow. So head of security calls him in and when he gets the background check back and says to him, you know, Chief Bob, you know, we got your background check back and it's uh, it's really kind of concerning. You know, oh, really, why is that? And he said, well, here, it looks like, it looks like you've been charged with credit card fraud. I mean, you can't have, you know, that's a problem working in a place like this. Can you explain that to me? Oh, that was just, terrible. you won't believe what happened there. Well, tell me what happened. Well, I was home from college and I, my dad and I hadn't really gotten along, but I was home visiting from college and he was being nice and he loaned me his credit card and I went out and I was hanging out with some friends and I had some drinks and I ran to this guy from high school I always had trouble with and there was sort of a scuffle and I must have dropped my credit card and this guy took my credit card and he ran up all sorts of charges. And I got home late, my dad was annoyed with me we got into an argument, so I took off. And then my father accused me of credit card fraud, that I had run up all these charges on his credit card. He called the police, and I ended up getting arrested on my way out of town. But it's it's all taken care of, and it's all cleared up. Had a security system. Wow, that's quite a story. He said, yeah, no, it was just awful, but it's, it's all better now. So you wouldn't mind if I called your father to confirm that, would you? <laughs> and the guy says, wow. No, go ahead, go ahead, because your father is listed as your emergency com, you know, contact here in your in your folder, your HR folder. No, no, you call him, call my dad. He'll explain the whole thing to you. So calls up, says this is so and so from such such firm, and you know I'm here with your son, and you know Mr. So and so, your son tells me this story. 
that there were, you know, credit card, and you made credit card fraud charges against him, but it was all cleared up because it was just a mistake, and this other guy stole his credit card, and the father says, you tell my son he's a lion sack if you know what. <laughs> that classic ability to sort of back up, back up, back up, deflect, no, no, I'm fine, yeah, no, I'm an open book, just go ahead and check it out, is kind of a classic example. We all also have examples of other people who just, you know, yeah, I was, I, you know, I was, uh, my, my picture was in the, in the magazine. I was, I was a model. My picture was in the, ma- in the magazine. Friends can't find the picture, right? Nobody, oh, it must have been a different version or it didn't get to the newsstand. You know, it's just, and it, it's sort of this pathetic line. Now, people can lie like that for all sorts of reasons, but when you put that in the constellation of these other symptoms, then in all likelihood you're talking about psychopathy. It's just fascinating to picture somebody who has such confidence to believe, like, you can call me on this, and, you know, others are going to either rush to my rescue. The example you gave of the guy who says, yeah, go ahead and call my dad, the fact that there wasn't any kind of nervousness around the ramifications of that, uh, I just can't even imagine being in the mindset of that. Really, once I, I mean, it's really interesting, because one of the things people say, oh, they're um Psychopaths have low anxiety, and indeed, physiological studies show they have sort of a lower arous- physiological arousal state at baseline. It takes a lot to get them revved up, right? It's not just low anxiety; it's it's more low fear. Mm. They are relatively fearless, and so whereas you or I would go, "Ooh, that's a bridge too far. I really don't want to take that chance to to uh, to tell that big a story." And you know, it looks like I'm caught. They're kind of indifferent to that. And so in some ways, it, it can be adaptive. It makes total sense. It makes total sense. I, I guess I'm curious, how does money play into this? You know, how, What about the psychopath who also comes from enormous wealth and can shield themselves from consequences? Like how, how does that impact the, the diagnosis or the behavior? Well, there's sort of, it's sort of a push-pull uh, mechanism, right? So... You know, Sut- we talk about Sutton's, Willie Sutton, the bank robber, right, was asked, uh, why do you rob banks? And he said, that's where the money is. So, uh, you know, there, that kind of applies here. I mean, people will go, at, will go after the money. And so you'll have people who, who are fraudsters. Ponzi, right? Famous Bostonian of, the, uh, of, the pon- of Ponzi scheme fame, right? Sort of indifferent. Uh, the Bernie Madoffs of the world, indifferent to the impact of their behavior, of their greed on other individuals, on charitable institutions that they were supposedly supporting. Uh, so there's the pull. It's, it's greed. It's about self-fulfillment. It is about, uh, I think Enron might be an example of this as well. And the things that people do to satisfy themselves, to satisfy their their greedy impulses, indifferent to the harm that they're causing other 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 people. There's also a phenomenon where uh, if people are in t- feel entitled to certain wealth and certain privileges, they will act in that way to you know in in some cases act in any way they can to sustain that. Have you found that money, you know, just the psychopath who has money has been able to be shielded from the consequences of their behavior in ways that have perpetuated this? I have, in fact, seen some cases where 
people who were who were very wealthy and were never who, who never faced the consequences of their behavior will sustain that. And then families are sort of trapped because you love your kids and what are you going to do with your kids and you're going to hold them to account and they can't really be that bad. So for many families, coming to grips with these things is really a struggle. Uh, and does money cause psychopathy? No, I don't think so. But I, I think, you know, not having to face, learning learning that one does not have to face the responsibility uh, and the consequences of their behavior is, is certainly problematic going forward. And you need to, you know, those are values that need to be taught pretty early on. I guess one of my questions is just kind of given this somewhat grim outlook, the way you've described it, is there help? Like, what do you do if you're a family member who has a loved one with this diagnosis? Is there help for psychopathy or for antisocial personality disorder? Um, and is there hope? Maybe that's a, a two-part question. Is there help? And is there yeah, hope? I, I, my answer today is different than what it would have been, so like twenty years ago, and even twelve years ago, or you know, or uh, nine years ago, when we when we published our book. Uh, there's a lot of activity in this realm. And in fact, I'm I'm on the advisory board of an organization called Psychopathy Is. You know, it's uh, and the website is psychopathy is all one word dot org, uh, and it's a it's a not for profit and. Uh, it was started by Abigail Marsh, who's a neuroscience professor here at Georgetown, and also Lisa Michael, who's a physics professor. Uh, and it is it is a central place to get information, uh, resources about treatment, articles, research articles, uh, all sorts of information about psychopathy, recognizing that this is a problem that afflicts a lot of individuals and a lot of families. We have a couple of people on the board of advisors who are self-identified as, as psychopaths. One's an attorney uh, who recognized and got treatment for this. So, and so, you know, people are paying attention. There are treatment approaches. We've learned a lot about methodology. I mean, years ago, we learned that standard psychiatric psychological treatment at least for incarcerated individuals, made their psychopathy worse uh, because they learned how to con and manipulate other people uh, in the prison setting. And so they just became more skilled with their application of their psychopathy. But in, in terms of treatment, uh, you know, there's psychotherapy. And I don't mean sort of insight-oriented, uh, you know, psychodynamic psychotherapy, but more cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy. It's learning-based. And of course, it, it requires a recognition on the part of the individual that this is behavior they need to change. They may not be and able willingness, to right, Ron? Yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So they may not be able to recognize that or experience the harm they're causing other people, but they may also recognize that no, I I need relationships because remember, it's a spe spectrum disorder, right? So it's not all black and white. It's not a binary: have empathy, no empathy. Uh, shallow affect uh, or, or full affect. I mean, it's, again, it's all on a continuum. But they may very well recognize that it's, it's essential to them that if they want to maintain their life and the relationships they have, including with their spouses and their children, uh, that they need to do something about this. So it's learning to manage the psychopathic 
impulses and behaviors. And it's doable. It's doable. In the 30 to 40 range, that's a challenge. But again, we're talking about the majority of these folks are in the 10 to 20, 20 to 30 range. And so these behaviors, like pathological lying, can be addressed. So that's psychotherapy, learning how to do that. Uh, medications to manage some of the symptoms, like impulsivity that may go with, with psychopathy. Um, uh, a warning here, though, uh, there was one study that was done on uh, people with psychopathy who had depression. And when they were put on a standard SSRI, you know, one of the standard modern, more modern antidepressants, uh, their irritability and impulsivity and interpersonal aggression decreased. But their conning, and, and as their depression improved, they decreased, but their conning and manipulative behavior increased. So, uh, you know, help sort of, yeah, good news, right? All around. Uh, and then, you know, for kids, I think it's really important to get evaluations done early. Uh, start with a pediatrician, get to a good uh, child and adolescent psychiatrist, psychologist early on, look for some specialty referrals in this area because there aren't a lot of experts on this, but I think we have, we're, you know, we're doing better about training young psychologists and young psychiatrists and, and social workers in this area. In fact, we have uh, uh, one of the, one of uh, Abigail Marsh's, Abby Marsh's uh, research assistant is coming over here to do some, some work with us here at the hospital. So we're, you know, and she's really interested in becoming a clinical psychologist and working with this population. So uh, sometimes the answer is residential treatment, especially as kids get older. And so you have to be careful here because there are a lot of programs that kind of offer magic solutions and you want to stay away things that are authoritarian based, you know, scared straight programs, uh, the sort of programs that have a lot of punishment involved. Because one of the things we know uh, in psychopathy is that psychopaths don't respond well in, in terms of learning to punishment. They respond to positive reinforcement, but not to punishment. Punishment really doesn't help them learn very well. So the programs that are like scared, scared straight, and again, those very authority-based programs don't work very well. And then there are some other, you know, kind of attachment theory program, rebirthing pro experiences that are kind of, you know, out there. You want to look at programs that are vetted and that have, you know, good data on their results. Fascinating. Thank you, Ron. I do have one last question, which is just, you know, can you tell us about when you are brought into a case? You know, you, we were going to do some case examples. I found this, I think we could keep you on the line for another hour. But if you can just give us a sense and, and the audience members, you know, when, who's calling you? And, and typically, I'm imagining you get a range of requests. I know we've worked on some pretty unique situations with you, but I, I think it'd be great for our listeners to know a little bit about when you get involved. Yeah, uh you know, it's a variety. As you can imagine, when the, when the book came out, uh, the phone was ringing a lot, and we got a lot of phone calls. And that's why, I'm, when I say you know, nine years ago, uh, you know, it was sort of tough. It was it was hard to find resources for people. And and nowadays, I think you know, with our website, the psychopathy is website is is it's nice that that's out there, right? And that people have a home. Uh, the sort of calls I get, I get a call from a corporation that has discovered that 
one of their executives has engaged in some behavior that everybody missed uh, along the way. And now they're looking at a situation where they're starting to do some forensic accounting and discovering that, you know, the claims of the sick child uh, actually weren't true. And that not only was the kid not sick, there isn't a child. uh, And the claims of, you know, needing to take extended trips for medical treatment were completely false and also that, you know, money was, you know, shadow contracts were being set up with clients and customers uh, and that there was sort of this network of running. And yet this was a, a person regarded as the sweetest and nicest and, you know, had the most compelling and sad personal story. Uh, so kind of brought in to help explain how one gets duped and how one does not get duped again. I've I've had families contact me to help them sort out uh, the behavior of a of a family member and what to make of that, and sort of you know walking them through the differential diagnosis because there are a lot of other things that can present with antisocial behavior, the psychopathic behavior, uh, and so even before you get to the diagnosis of psychopathy, start looking at those at those uh, you know treatment possibilities. You need to do what we always do in medicine, look at, you know, differential diagnosis and the old rule that common things occur commonly, right? So mood disorders, bipolar disorder, uh, uh, other psychiatric disorders are, are much more common than psychopathy. And so you start with those. I've also been involved in a number of forensic evaluations as a, as a forensic psychiatrist who testifies in criminal and civil cases. Uh, I'm always on the lookout for behaviors that are suggestive of psychopathy. Uh, and so, in some cases, it comes up because there's a question at a sentencing hearing whether a person is at risk of reoffending. There, the presence or absence of psychopathy can be very useful in, in helping to make that determination. Thank you, Ron. Really appreciate your taking this time to talk with us today and inform our listeners about what sounds like an all too common presentation that we are, by and large, pretty ignorant about. So really appreciate that. I'm going to go out and research and go on Psychopathy Is and check out the resources. If you have any final words for our audience today, we would love to hear them. Do you have one thought you'd like to leave with? Uh, Yeah, I mean, don't despair if you're encountering this and don't don't overreact to some of these symptoms. I, mean, I often say in, in my forensic work, especially in my threat assessment work, that you know I'm in the anxiety titration business. That if people come to me with a problem and based on what I'm hearing and seeing, they're not anxious enough, I maybe try to tune up their anxiety a little bit and dial it up so that they're motivated to act uh, and address it. But in most cases, people are too anxious and too worried. And so we try and get folks on a steady course and pursuing the best possible, safest, and most productive treatment. Excellent. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. If you would like us on whatever platform you use to listen to this podcast, we would greatly appreciate it. Thanks and have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.